And even if we're saying the idea of new is kind of new and better and recovered, it's still really, really scary for people because we're saying, can you trust in your body, right? Can you trust in yourself? I know you are doing the best that you can right now. Your relationships matter to you. You are important. And yet over time, we get stuck. We get lost or we stop showing up as our true self. We get hung up on the stories we tell ourselves, the comparisons, or feeling like we are not good enough. I'm Not Your Shrink is a podcast aimed at helping you feel connected to yourself, to others, and to live a life that is in line with what matters most to you. I'm Dr. Tracy Dalglish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife and mother to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Let's dive in. Today's episode is for any person who has struggled to love their body, to honor their body, and also get stuck in all of this dieting, messaging around food, and the messaging around intuitive eating. I'm so excited that you clicked listen on this. I am sitting with my colleague here from my clinic, Integrated Wellness, Dr. Megan Gallagher. She is a clinical psychologist, and in her practice, she works with adolescents, adults, couples, and families who are experiencing a range of difficulties related to mental health concerns, interpersonal and relationship problems, and adjustment to major life transitions. She has a specific interest and extensive experience in the assessment and treatment of eating disorders, body image concerns, anxiety disorders, OCD, post-traumatic stress disorder, mood disorders, and adolescent mental health. And Dr. Gallagher is so passionate about intuitive eating, working from a HAES approach and breaking down diet culture and the wellness obsession. Before we start, I just want to warn you that the first few minutes of the episode, our internet connection and microphones were doing something funny, but I promise you it gets better. Let me know what you think of today's episode by clicking the review button. I want to hear from you. Let's dive in. Hi, Dr. Megan. Hi, Dr. Tracy. Thank you so much for sitting with me here on the podcast. We have had a road to get here to actually record this episode with changes in our schedule and cancellations, but we're here. I know. And in prepping for today, it feels like we're taking so many of the conversations that we've had sort of just like outside of our doors in our kind of, you know, waiting room turned practice family room um, onto the podcast. Yes, we've had so many good conversations. So before we get started, I always like to ask my guests, tell us three things about you. I am a recovering perfectionist. Yes, I can do it. <laughs> work, work in progress, but uh, not to brag, I think it's going pretty well recently. I am a super proud aunt of two amazing, amazing kids, and I really love dogs, but acknowledge that I'm not responsible enough to put in the work to have one, so I just creep on other dogs' Instagram accounts, which has led to my new hobby of trying to explain to my partner, who doesn't do Instagram or anything, that like I don't know these dogs, and the account actually belongs to the dog. <laughs> So I'm going to hit you up the next time we need a dog sitter for Lachlan. <laughs> We're on. We can do a dog sitter and fun aunt and uncle really well. <laughs> as long as you get to give them back afterwards, right? That's the best part. 
So thinking about today's episode, I was going back into some of the experiences I've had with clients, even with myself, um, and thinking about us talking about bodies and the messages that we receive and how we treat our bodies and you know the, the stuff we hold inside of us around food and our appearance. And I was remembering this client once telling me through tears that she hadn't been honoring her and she pointed to her body. And I could just see in her face that it wasn't just the past month or year that she hadn't been listening to her body, but it had been years and likely even generations in her family. So, you know, I think this is such a common experience that so many of us have had where we're growing up and we're learning just to not honor our bodies. I hear that all the time from, from clients as well too. And I think you're exactly right that folks are generally not bringing those concerns up when it's been like, oh, I've lost track of connecting or honoring my body the past couple months. Um, that oftentimes the thing that we're actually taught is how to actually ignore or try to control or to really kind of misunderstand what our body needs, that we're, we're born with this kind of innate wisdom and our bodies know so much about what they need. Um, and we're really not taught to kind of celebrate that and to go for it. We're taught quite the opposite that this is like, this is really a, you know, a lifelong project for you to be working on, which really does involve um, giving up meeting our own needs in a lot of cases. Yes. Right. This lifelong piece, eh? That I think oftentimes what happens is we think we're going to arrive at some point and we wake up and then we're going to forever for the rest of our life say, I love my body. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's such a sick part of the game with, I mean, with dieting, diet culture generally, and certainly a lot of the clients that I work with who experience eating disorders really get that, right? Okay, when we get to kind of X weight, when we get to this point, then we can stop, then I'll feel good. And the truth of the matter is, is just not how it works, whether we're talking in a more kind of diet mentality, disordered eating or an eating disorder, there's always more. So that's, well, if you've come this far, why not go farther? Or if you quit now, this isn't good enough. So it's a real double-edged sword of meeting, of meeting that goal. And knowing so much of this is implicit, these internal dialogues or narratives that we have, we often aren't even aware of them, right? And I think even for myself, it took a long time for me to just become aware of where were these implicit messages I kept telling myself over and over again. And I thought maybe let's just dive into this part here by making what's implicit into more of the explicit. What are those common negative messages that we hear or learn about our bodies? I think the biggest, and it's maybe kind of very broad, but is that we can't really trust them, that they don't know that there has to be some plan we're following or something that we're doing and kind of this sense of sort of urgency and diligence that we need to kind of keep our bodies under control. Um, and you're certainly for some folks experiencing certain chronic health conditions, there are are things to kind of be checking in on more and this would be done under medical direction but short of those times where there's something either kind of chronic or acute medically going on for you our bodies kind of know what to do um we're we're really though given this message that they're sort of the opposition and they're this thing that we do need to really kind of wrangle before they get out of control so i I think that's such an important message that you're sharing there is that 
somehow we tell ourselves that we can keep our bodies under control. Like somehow we can control everything that happens. Yeah. And if we think of kind of really built into that, it's also that there is a right way for them to be right. If we're going to do all this work and all this striving and aim for this control, it's not kind of without an ideal of where we're supposed to get to. And that idea of like, you know, when I, my body looks this way, when I lose this weight, when I'm finally kind of worthy is often what we're thinking of, right? That's when I can then really go start living my life, right? which is, is just heartbreaking. It is. It's such a common message that I hear from people though, in the sense that it's like, okay, I won't be able to do these things, or I'm not going to go buy new clothes until, or I'm holding onto all of those old clothes. Um, and, and it's just that sense of like, somehow I'm tied to that. My worth is tied to that. And I can't take that next step forward. Yeah. And for so many people, that idea of that, like what I am tied to is that number on a scale or a clothing size or what my body looked like at a certain given time is so tied to my identity and my worth. You, well, you mentioned kind of two interesting things, right? One, that I won't be able to kind of go say, get new clothes, or I can't let go of those clothes that I had when my body was in a different space. And sometimes people kind of sit at the intersection of both of those things as their body is changing. If we're thinking, am I ready to get rid of clothes that just no longer serve my body? It can look like a very simple act of kind of, you know, cleaning out the closet. And I'm a big fan of kind of Mary Kondo style doing that. Um, But it can also be very, very powerful in terms of us deciding to really grieve you know, that grief around, I'm, I'm letting go of the idea of control or I'm letting go of what I've kind of attached to this smaller body. It can also be a really freeing kind of piece. And I had a client not too long ago who came back and said, you know, I, it was totally different when I did the closet thing this time. I was, I was just ready to do it again. I got rid of all these things. It felt so freeing. And then I had fun buying new clothes that fit, you know, my current professional role, my body that feel good for me. And it was, yeah, it was a huge, huge moment to, to be able to kind of really sit in what that freedom can feel like when we're not being tied to kind of a a number or a size. It's really interesting that you mentioned this like loss idea there that in some ways, and that's tied to control, right? Because when we're trying to control something, we don't want to grieve. We're trying to keep things the same. Somehow we can expect to go back, whether even if we're not talking just about body size and weight, go back to this other place and say our relationship where we were in the honeymoon stage or go back to the space of, um, you know, with friends or family or a certain marker in life rather than holding something lightly, And moving forward with it and accepting that we change, we can't have control over something like this. And that I think acceptance is such a huge part, right? That I'm accepting that my body through different kind of seasons of my life will look and function differently. And accepting the idea that that's totally normal and healthy and a big part of just our humanness. But also accepting some of the discomforts that's going to come with that. We often, you know, aim to control our bodies or really kind of externalize maybe an emotion, right? If I'm feeling really stressed, well, what can I do? I can control my food. I can control my movement. I can diet. I can make my body kind of a, a project that I'm chiefly in charge of. Instead of sitting with some of that discomfort that maybe there are some things in my world that are really chaotic or unpredictable or they're really stressing me out. 
Support for today's episode comes from ZocDoc. We all know there are things in life we have to compromise on, like the right way to load a dishwasher or whether those socks are going to stay on the floor for a week. Okay, in all seriousness, but when it comes to your mental health, there is no compromise. So we don't need to go back to that one therapist or one physician who didn't align with what we need just because they're available right now. We don't need to compromise on the care we need for our overall wellness. Instead, this is where ZocDoc comes in. This is a place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. And you can find someone who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your well-being. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. Go to ZocDoc.com com slash I-N-Y-S and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. If I needed this app, this is one that I would be going to. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash I-N-Y-S and get the care that you need today. Support for today's episode comes from Cozy Earth. You know I am all about caring for ourselves, especially in these busy years with our young kids. We are pulled in so many directions, but I think it's so important for us to find ways to nurture ourselves that require no additional time from us. I should probably let you in on one of my favorite things to do to look after me, and that is to get a good night's sleep on amazing sheets. I am beyond thrilled to bring you Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding products with an exclusive Mother's Day offer just for my listeners. We've got a code. It's SHRINK, S-H-R-I-N-K, for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. Now, I didn't believe it until I tried them, but I firmly stand by my sleep improving with the temperature regulating technology, which adapts to your body's needs. For the past year, I have not slept on any other brand of sheets. Cozy Earth uses the very best fabrics, materials, and wares, offering superior softness for you to sink into at the end of those long days. I look forward to getting into bed, and we've been loving the sheets for over a year and their sleepwear is so unbelievably soft and it's made with such great quality. But the best part is that if you're worried about commitment, enjoy a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty on all of your purchases. Head over to CozyEarth.com and use promo code SHRINK for an exclusive 35% off and give the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth. Support for today's episode comes from Loop Earplugs. For so long after having children, I kept wondering why I was easily overwhelmed and felt like an angry mom. The noise from the kids, the dog barking, and the sounds around me from everyday life. But I now understand that I'm not an angry mom, and instead, my nervous system gets overwhelmed and overstimulated, which is why I've been turning more and more to my loop earplugs to help me stay more regulated and engaged with the family. I'm using loop engage to help dampen the sound around me. And these loop earplugs allow me to still be with every beat and conversation. I still hear Greg. I can still hear the kids. I love that they are so comfortable and they come with eight silicone ear tips to ensure the right fit for you. 
The best part for me is that I take them everywhere with me. They are proving the test of time and not to mention they're stylish in my ears. Plus, we love the kids versions, which we've been able to take to the movies for our kids. I'm so excited that Loop Earplugs is offering you, my community, a discount so that you too can tackle that overstimulation while still being engaged with the activities and people you love. Visit loopearplugs.com and use my code loop times Dr. Tracy for 10% off your order. That's L-O-O-P-X-D-R-T-R-A-C-Y for 10% off your order. Sitting in that discomfort rather than finding what am I going to control instead, right? Because that control really feeds that comfort, familiarity, safety, certainty. And familiarity is a word that I frequently come back to with people, whether that's around kind of dieting behaviors or in terms of eating disorder recovery, when sometimes people say, well, I I know some of the reasons I want to change. I know what making that change or kind of investing in my recovery would give me, but what I'm doing now, I've been doing it for so long and it's comfortable. Okay. If we unpack that idea and it's comfortable, right? This thing that is really making you suffer, that's stressing you out, controlling you, damaging your psychological and physical health. Is that comfortable? And generally the answer is no, but it's really familiar, right? I know how to do that dance. I know the playbook for this. Mm -hmm. I've been doing it for years or decades. So the idea of new, and even if we're saying the idea of new is kind of new and better and recovered, it's still really, really scary for people. Because we're saying, can you trust in your body, right? Can you trust in yourself? And, you know, if we think of that similar to what we do with our, our relationship work with people in families or in partnerships, thinking, okay, well, just blindly go forth and put trust. Well, if I think, okay, whew, I've really not been paying much attention to my partner's needs. I've really been overly controlling with them. I've really actually sometimes been pretty damaging to my partner, to our bond. It would be really, really scary for me to show up and go, I'll just trust them freely. Of course. And oftentimes what I hear people say is like, why should my body show up for me? Right? If I've been invested and investing so much of kind of my, my time and my energy and myself into these kind of punishing diet cycles, why should I believe my body's going to show up and be ready to have my back? And it's a valid question, but the thing is our bodies are on our side and through all of that, they don't stop kind of showing up for us and doing everything that they can. And frequently we double down on that and think I'm dieting so hard. I'm doing all these things and my stupid body just will not get on board, right? It won't do what I want it to do. I'm doing all the right things. And especially for kind of, you know, rulesy perfectionistic people, we expect I do all the things, I follow all the steps and I'll get the result that I want. And we get mad. And the reality is our body is kind of tolerating the things that we're doing. It doesn't know why we're not eating. It doesn't know why we're over-exercising. It's showing up to make sure that we're okay. And that's a, it's a hard one because it's not usually the way trust goes. We're saying our body actually really does kind of have this unconditional positive regard for our survival. It, it makes me think of this one question that came in around um, a mother saying that her eating disorder or body image stuff is being triggered by watching her six-year-old daughter eat. And that's really interesting when we go back to what it means watching our children. Mm-hmm. Because especially young kids, they, do, they don't question their bodies, right? They're 
they think they're pretty cool. They uh, frequently show up and like tell you all the things that they're doing, whether we're like, oh, that's maybe, that's maybe an at-home conversation. <laughs> but they, they're just kind of amazed. They're observing, they're describing what's going on for them. They're not in this judgmental and sort of should space. Um, none of us are until we're kind of trained and taught how to do that. For those listening, if you haven't already, go back to episode four of this season with Dr. Shafali. Um, I wasn't surprised when this question came up in my community because even for my own journey, I've done so much unlearning with the table stuff with my kids. And even something like, um, you know, if we go and we get donuts, it's so important for me to eat a donut with my children, right? I'm learning to trust my body and I'm unlearning all of the messages that carbs are bad and you shouldn't eat sugars and things like that. Right. And so when I'm with my kids, it's so important because I want them to see first, see me eating with them. That is one of my values is that we can enjoy food together and we can enjoy being together. Um, but then also too watching them trust their bodies. So my daughter eats the way she eats a donut is just amazing. And I don't say anything about it. That's kind of something that I've been learning. I don't comment on her food. Um, she trusts her body. And she eats the donut by licking off all of the icing and she leaves the donut on the table. And it's amazing because, you know, I don't think about how often am I giving them quote quotation marks treats. Um, I think about what is it that we're doing with this? Okay. Well, we might be celebrating um, or it might be Saturday, just mom and us time. And so then we get the food and we enjoy the food. We don't have to talk about it. I don't have to make a big deal out of it. But then I'm also not going to say, oh, you didn't eat the rest of your donut. Why didn't you eat the rest? Right. She's going to trust her body and what feels good for her. And whether we're talking about kind of donuts or broccoli or whatever it is, right. That kids will kind of eat what what they want and as much as they want in those times and then kind of be satisfied with it and not question it too much. Um, if we get kind of wrapped up in, are they doing it right? Is that enough? Is that too much? Well, they have sort of their own internal thermostat of, of what's appealing, what they need, mm-hmm. and when they're full. And it's Part, I mean, part of the big thing we as adults usually need to kind of relearn is how to tap into that sense of satisfaction or satiety or fullness. Mm. Because we look, we look to the external, right? Is my is my plate clean? If we grew up in kind of clean your plate kind of houses. And how um, many of us grew up in that house? Because my husband and I talk about that all the time. We grew up in that house. And we got stuck in it at the beginning with our kids. And we're like, you're supposed to eat your plate. <laughs> Or sometimes the idea of, oh, well, like, you know, you've got to, you got to finish your veggies or like before dessert or we're not doing dessert. And it's like, well, but what if I'm, what if my satisfaction bar for my veggies is met? Yes. And I'm just ready for the next thing, which I think is another really nice way of thinking if, if those kind of fun foods, for lack of a better word, because we don't want to kind of give them good food, bad food, moralistic food. Like I love fun foods. That's a good word to use. If we're thinking junk food, like, did you take it out of the garbage? Was it in there? <laughs> because if so, okay, then, then I'll stand with junk food if you're taking this out of the trash. Pulling a George Costanza on Seinfeld. Exactly. Don't take this out of the trash. No, no, and we don't call it junk food in our house. Um, I try not to label it as treats either because I'm trying to teach it as food is just food. And like the unlearning from the diet culture I mean, I'm befriending pasta again, which is 
Like when did pasta get to be bad? When did carbs get to be bad? Food is food. Food is food. And that we, you know, especially like if I'm, you know, if I'm working with some of my younger teens or even kind of like chatting around with parents about how to talk about this stuff as if we're thinking, okay, there are some, some species that are kind of one note eaters, right? If we were like panda bears, koala bears, we would eat one thing and our systems would be happy with it. But that's not how we roll. So we need kind of this whole range of, of different types of energy and different types of energy do different things in our bodies. So if we have jobs, um, say like a psychologist or for students, this one's really important where the most of our energy is kind of thinking brain kind of energy. Carbs are really our friends. Mm. Interesting. So what kinds of things is my body called on to do in a given period of time is probably going to be a good guide to what types of fuel I would want to have on board. And then it also makes a whole lot of sense that like why I would want that pasta for my meal. Well, yeah, I spent all day talking and thinking and doing that stuff. I need to refuel that source of energy. I had interrupted you earlier. What other messages have are commonly received around food and satisfaction or fullness? I think we lose like lose track of the nuance about fullness, about hunger and fullness. I mm. hear people so often say like, well, when I realized I was hungry, then I ate. Okay, well, how do you know? What does hunger feel like for you? And often people say, oh, you could hear my stomach growling from across the room. Or when I went to stand up, I had to grab the wall. I felt like I was going to fall over or I was dizzy. And that's really when we're in more of a starvation mode, that there are, there are a lot of exits along the way that we have missed of our body saying like, hey, we're hungry. Um, if we've not been in the practice of listening to those hunger cues, or if we've been dieting or restricting or kind of fasting a lot, sometimes the reality for people is they don't notice those kind of hunger and satiety cues very well anymore. We haven't lost the ability to do it. We've just gotten out of practice. So in those cases, you'd be thinking, okay, if we estimate, you know, you're probably going to need something to eat somewhere in that sort of like three to five hour window, depending on your activity level and just kind of your own body's preferences. Let's kind of put those check-ins in. At those times you think, hey, do I feel hungry? But I like a meal or a snack. If you're not sure, give it a go and see how it goes. Um, so some of those kind of really misunderstood things about like what what is hunger and what is fullness when we bring up one of the principles of intuitive eating of being able to kind of feel your fullness sometimes if people's view of fullness is well I'm really stuffed and uncomfortable maybe after I feel like I overeat or after I have a binge why would I want to get comfortable with that right and fair enough because that may be physically and psychologically really uncomfortable for you but that's also not what we're talking about here, right? If we're thinking, I am, I'm noticing that like my body just kind of feels like I've had enough. Rather than past that point of I'm so full, I need to lay down, right? So then that mm -hmm. is we're not listening into our body to see what it is that we need um, to slow down, to stop earlier. Yeah. And much like, I mean, we can make the parallel of, you know, any other sort of like biological kind of needs there, right? If we think of fatigue and sleep, well, I don't need to be, you know, a hundred percent fully rested to do something that takes energy, but I also don't need to wait until I'm like incoherent, can't keep my eyes open and sort of falling over to be able to get more rest. 
that there's, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of kind of steps along the way where we think kind of, where am I at when I really kind of focus inward and kind of take a read on my system. Mm -hmm. So if I think of this mother then who sent this in about her six-year-old daughter, um, it's triggering her fear of uh, her daughter being fat and unlovable are the quotation marks. How, how would she navigate that? I think, first of all, I mean, I think it's a for parents, for anybody who works with kids, it's really important for us to say, can I take some time to check out like my own, my own relationship with body, my own relationship with food, and to do that in a loving and caring and compassionate way with ourselves. I mean, especially mm-hmm. if, um, you know, if we think of a parent who maybe did have their own like, experience weight-based discrimination weight-based bullying, or was raised kind of with their own um, own messages around kind of fat phobia and that kind of stuff, of course, a loving parent would think, I don't want that for my kid. Mm-hmm. So that's not mom doing anything wrong. That's saying I have a really legitimate fear and I want what's good for my kids so that they can be happy. Mm-hmm. And can we take a look at that? Does that really now in my adult's brain and my adult heart makes sense and, and makes sense with my values. If, my, if I'm living in a larger body, am I unlovable? Am I not valuable? Right? Can I unpack some of the assumptions that go along with that? That really goes back to those implicit messages that so many people hold around bodies mm-hmm. and not, you know, I think part of that piece, and, and I think you and I have talked about this in terms of even who do you follow on social media of opening up your view to all bodies and being able to see all, all bodies come in different shapes and sizes and how important that is. Um, what stood out for me with this mom, I thought, you know, gosh, how important it is that you're already recognizing that that's coming yeah. up. So that you have this awareness that you're being triggered and now you have a choice to do, right? You, you get to make a choice. And how often do we, do we sit with folks in our office thinking about like, okay, how do we get a bit of sort of like a distance, right? How can we understand what's coming up for me? Things like, well, I'm noticing worries that, right? Or I'm noticing I'm having thoughts about as opposed to she'll eat that and this is what will happen, right? right? That kind of when things come in so kind of hot like that, that we think this, the thought that pops into my head and the fear that follows it means this is a fact that mm. I need to do something about. As opposed to, whew, you know, when I see my child enjoying themselves, I notice this comes up for me. We're already making some space there to say, I can sit with that discomfort and I can unpack some of those assumptions that are underneath. One of my favorite things that you have said um, and in our consult meetings here at IW, as you have said, anxiety's priorities are not your priorities. And it really takes us back to what our values are and that we can choose things that are in line with what's meaningful to us, with connection, um, or we listen to that anxiety, which just pulls us away from what really matters, right? Absolutely. And if we think of, I mean, if we go back to kind of your example of donuts with your kids, well, what are my values here? Your, your values probably isn't like donuts are great. They, they are. <laughs> but if we're thinking, well, why would I do that? Why would I have this time to kind of have these moments of connection with the kids, share these foods with the kids? It's because we want to connect. Mm. So if we're thinking, I don't, 
I don't want this kind of anxiety about food and body jumping in and spoiling their relationship with food. Right. Can we also give parents a bit of space here and that like, it's not really fair that it jumps in and messes up your time with your kids either, right? If your value is, I want to show up and connect with them and enjoy these foods. Great. That you deserve that kind of, that emotional space in there as well. One of my, before becoming conscious of my body and receiving all of the negative messages that society offered, um, my favorite memory with my father actually is every Saturday morning, he would take my sister and I to get donuts at the local donut shop just down the corner from where we lived. And we would just have the best laughs. And we did that for years. And it's something that I truly value of being able to sit there and have our chocolate milk or hot chocolate in the winter and eat our donut. And it was a time of connection. And it, it's, it's so interesting though, because then we get all these negative messages around types of food or around that we should not like our body or be careful not to grab that other cookie, or you can only have so much of this. It, it's so challenging. There's so much unlearning that comes from this. And, and I really like that you had said that, that yes, this piece around, it's not about donuts with the kids. It's a piece of connection. But that brings me to my next question, which is that people struggle. This was a common question coming up when I asked my community preparing for our episode today. Um, that there's this deep connection between food and feelings. Let's talk about this. Consider ourselves as baby mammals. How do we soothe? We don't have babies and young children who go journal about their feelings or go for a walk or do a meditation <laughs> as, as, as our first kind of sources of soothing and connection are, are rocking and feeding. Mm-hmm. So as soon as we start saying, oh, you know, I, I'm an emotional eater. Okay. We, we all are. We all are. That's Okay that it's okay, there's no problem. The bigger problem becomes when I judge and shame and guilt myself for doing that. Ooh, let's sit there for a minute. Okay, I'm an emotional eater. That's not a problem. And and I think about it. What do we do when we're celebrating? We get a cake, you know, and the delicious cookies we've had here in the office because we're celebrating something or with the kids, right? So yeah, there are there are emotions attached to food right from birth. And, and that messaging also in the motherhood community is super tough that uh, to not, there was a common one I remember hearing of like, oh, don't feed your baby if it's not feeding time. And if they're upset, well, that was a great way to soothe my children. And of course, right? But what you just said there is so important. It's the guilt and the shame and beating ourselves up after. Yeah, because... If we thought, like, it, you make a really good point, right? That we, it's not just sort of what we sometimes kind of unfairly categorize as kind of the quote unquote bad emotions, right? Like anger or sadness or fear. Um, we eat around emotions for, for the, the fun, happy stuff too, like the birthday party. So food is tied to our emotional systems, whether that's through ways that we may kind of soothe, ways that we may celebrate. Um, it also holds, you know, like you said, your memories of with donuts with your dad. It has strong emotional links, right? We, we hold it. And I know if people are listening, they can't see, but when you talk about that with your dad, you light up. Where we go, oh, it's a very kind of visceral memory of good stuff. 
Mm-hmm. So it's all good, right? If food is part of our kind of emotion regulation or emotion management, if that's part of our repertoire, okay, know what works for you. And I say part of our emotional repertoire because I think it's also important that we're diversified because we could take any coping strategy. And if we said, this is the tool I have that I apply to every feeling and every situation, it's not going to be all that functional. Right. We need more than one tool in our toolbox because not mm-hmm. every situation is going to require the tool. So if I'm, if I am, I, I guess so the question that kept coming up was if I'm stressed and this is really impacts my appetite, right? Or if I'm stressed and every time I'm stressed, I turn to eat the cookie. Truthfully, that's not going to feel good on my body. My body also can't necessarily handle that much sugar in a day. My gut doesn't feel good, right? Like that is actually like tuning into my body in that way. But there are so many other things that I can be doing, the other tools in my toolbox when I'm stressed. And often if we're saying, so I'm turning to that cookie, it's usually because dot, 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 I'm turning away from what's stressing me out. Or I'm turning away from what I'm feeling. Right. Let's jump into the nervous system here. Cause I think that is also, you and I have both dived into some polyvagal theory and looking at the vagus nerve. And I'm just thinking about like, you know, if people can become aware of when they have gotten into that stress response cycle and they're getting mm-hmm. stuck in either this hyperactivation or that shutdown space, then it's really hard to tune into what is it that you really need in those moments. It is, right? Because we may think, well, if I'm if I'm in sort of that that more sympathetic activation or kind of that stress kind of fight or flight sort of space, for some people, they really want to reach for certain kinds of foods, right? Because they're saying, okay, I can, here's a thing I can kind of do, or here's a thing I can do to make me feel better. For other people in a stress space, their appetite just kind of goes away. And if we're thinking, okay, this is sort of a short term, like I'm having a stressful morning, probably not a huge deal. Where it becomes more problematic is if we're saying that people are under more chronic stress. Well, just because I have a higher stress level or just because I'm not picking up on like an appetite or a hunger cue doesn't mean my body doesn't need that energy. So I would say if in cases of kind of longer term stress, if I think my appetite has really gone away, the metaphor I usually use with people is the idea if I say, Tracy, great news. I got this new car and uh, the fuel light never comes on. It broke. So I guess I just don't need to get gas. I'm going to save so much money. Where are we going to get stuck? (laughs) (laughs) uh, So how far from your house are you now? And how far are you going to have to walk back? (laughs) Right. Just because that indicator doesn't show up, it doesn't need that on a more sort of just functional level, we don't have a need for energy. And so I think there's that piece around managing our stress response. If, if we've been really feeling it and really stuck in a feeling, maybe we start feeling kind of more snacky or more bingy because we're underfed, right? So thinking that I'm, I'm managing both kind of my emotions in the moment, but also bigger picture continuing to look at like, what are my biological needs too? Because that's where things like eating really can get kind of messy, Right. The, the comment that came up was, uh, how can I stop binge eating when I'm stressed? Mm. The first step when people say, okay, I want to stop binge eating is taking a look at, are you eating enough leading up to? 
Because generally we know that kind of those triggers for, for binge eating are when people are not adequately fed, right? Our body kind of plays catch up and plays rebound. Um, sometimes it's around kind of stress, right? Is there another big emotion going on? So if we're saying like, hey, I can acknowledge this happens for me under stressful situations or when I'm more anxious, great. We already know what one of the players is here. The other is sometimes situational or kind of we habituate to doing things, right? If I think, well, I always have this certain stressful day and at the end of the day, I go pick pick up A, B, or C and then I kind of have that more bingy time. There's a bit of kind of a, a practiced effect there. So we're saying if I'm feeding my body consistently throughout the day, I'm getting in there to stop kind of the more biological or physiological part of the binge. Also, am I taking that time to kind of take my emotional temperature during the day? If I'm noticing those times of like, oh, the anxiety or stress is really there. Okay, can we can we sit in that discomfort for a minute to see like what what is actually going on, right? What thoughts or feelings are truly coming up for me? If we're saying I'm I'm not taking the idea of eating off the table, right? You can do it, especially if that's been part of your coping. We know you can do it. And we know to a certain degree it kind of works short term. Mm-hmm. So let's not get mean with ourselves and let's not think, oh my gosh, that's been taken away from me. It's there. You can do it. If you, if you choose, you have permission to cope with your feelings in whatever way you think is going to work for you. Before we go there, is there anything else that might be worth a try? Is there anything else that might address or meet this need a bit better? I like that question because what that does is it brings a lot of flexibility into the space as well. That flexibility mm-hmm. of what else is in my toolbox and what else could help me in this moment. And I even think about how we're saying the stressors build throughout the day. And again, if we go back to our nervous system and if we're in that hyperactivation space, right? And I can feel myself say during the day, I'm getting into that space where I'm just can't get anything done and I'm just buzzing. And I know that I'm like, the thoughts in my head are do more, you've got to get more done. And the feeling is anxiety. And if I just sit there and try to get through it, I'm probably more likely to like feel the buildup of all that stress at the end of the day, reach for the cookie. And I use the cookie as an example because actually Greg made delicious cookies recently and my stomach just hated them, like just did not like them. So that's an example. So listening to that, but, or what happens then during the day is, you know, I get out my trampoline. And I bounce on it for two to five minutes, put on a song, and I've just given my nervous system that moment to get back into a little bit more of that calm space. And it's where, you know, from that sort of that nervous system, that polyvagal model, right, we can kind of walk up and down our ladder and into those different spaces, right? Like if I'm thinking I'm, I'm going to jump on the trampoline and listen to some music, I can move myself up into sort of that space of safety, where things come back online, right? I'm more able to kind of work and focus. If we're saying, oh, I'm already noticing that I'm really in that kind of activated stress space, white knuckle it, push through, do more, where we're just adding kind of more and more stress mm-hmm. onto our already stressed system. Which it becomes end. sort of that old, like, that kind of office adage of like, are you working hard or working smart, right? <laughs> we just, we, we expend a ton of energy. We're working really hard but not really getting to where we want to go. Yes. I'm thinking about, 
you, you've mentioned a few times eating intuitively, and I know this is an area that you've really done some work in. And one person had stated to me on Instagram, intuitive eating is impossible. There's too much social pressure every day to make it happen. So first, what, what is it? What is it not? And why do you think this person says it's impossible? I, I was listening to a podcast recently with Evelyn Triboli, who's one of the authors of Intuitive Eating. And she made the really good point, right? Like if you, if you want to understand what intuitive eating is, read the books. If you want to be really confused about what it is, go on social media. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, it made me burst out laughing because I frequently, right? I'll be kind of on my Instagram feed and think, like, what the hell is this? why on earth am I getting this kind of diety stuff? And when I look up and it's like, oh, hashtag intuitive eating, I'm going like, oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Um, intuitive eating is a, a set of kind of, of 10 principles that really kind of help to heal relationship with food, relationship with body, and kind of put that all together in a way that we're really respecting what feels good for us and what our bodies need. It's the opposite of dieting in a lot of ways, which sometimes makes people feel like I'm, I can't do this or it's hard or it feels impossible because unlike a diet mentality, right? It doesn't matter which diet we choose. Um, it comes with a set of rules. Mm -hmm. We know when we're, we're doing it right. We know that we're doing it wrong. We can succeed short-term. We can fail. The tricky part with anything that like intuitive eating or those things that are really kind of self-directed and using our body as kind of that source of wisdom, there's not this thing we do that means, oh, I failed that or I'm not doing it right. Mm. So it is much more of kind of a dynamic process of thinking, I'm going to start challenging some of these things in some of these ways. And I may take some steps forward, some steps back. And that's okay. It's part of the journey and part of the learning that goes along with that. Um, it will feel more difficult for some people. And I think the, I really liked some of the things that I've heard from the authors where they plainly kind of acknowledge, right, for folks with trauma backgrounds, for folks living in larger or marginalized bodies, for people with trauma histories, this may be really hard to do. And in a lot of ways, what is celebrated in, you know, intuitive eating or ditching the diet in somebody who looks one way, people who look a different way really come against a lot of kind of judgment or stigmatizing or, or criticism. So I think it's important to kind of put that out there without kind of knowing this person's life experience or anything that there, there may be some real things going on mm -hmm. that, that make it much harder so there's, there's kind of the, why it's a challenge is because it's not this follow these steps, kind right. of black and white sort of rules. It's there's hard not the forever. control in there. It, exactly. It's saying, I'm, I'm actually choosing to do some of these things that are quite uncomfortable. And in fact, when, when I first started actually going through the intuitive eating book and kind of doing more of that actual training myself, the thing that kept coming up for me is like, wow, so much of this is kind of similar to what we do almost like an exposure therapy with people for anxiety disorders. The idea is you're going to, you're going to make this list of feared foods. You're going to make these kind of lists of, you know, the kind of diet police body and food rules you have. And 
can we start kind of picking those off? Can we start breaking them? With the acknowledgement that there's there's going to be tension and anxiety built into the process. Right. It's that going towards discomfort. And mm-hmm. instead of staying in familiar familiarity, which feels good in the short term, we're choosing something long term. And that right. that's hard. And the other piece in there is. I remember reading a statistic of how many diets people have been on in their lifetime and also the age of which a girl will first diet. And sadly, it's getting like younger and younger. I think the most recent US stat that I read was it was something like 49% of girls kind of like six and up were on diets. And if we, the things that we know from the kind of the actual research about diets, kind of not what any particular program is going to put out there as numbers to sell something to you is they do not work for the vast, vast majority of people in any kind of long-term way. Mm -hmm. There's some stats where around, you know, sort of three to 5% work. And some of the thinking around that is like that three to 5% of people may sort of have more of a psychological makeup where I say, do the thing, you do the thing and you keep doing it on repeat forever. And you're not bothered by that. That's not going to be most of us. Right. The other thing we know is, I mean, if if people are weight conscious, which and we're we're generally taught to be, repeated dieting and chronic dieting generally results in either return to your pre-dieting weight or a higher weight. So it's another way that like what we're being sold isn't serving us. And especially when it comes to kids and teenagers and where we can do a bit of preventative stuff, if we think we can get in to sort of stop that cycle because chronic and repeated dieting becomes a major risk factor for eating disorders. So, you know, sometimes when parents are concerned like, oh, but like, you know, what if, what if they gain weight? What if they're at a higher weight? Well, incidence of eating disorders is much, much higher than incidence of things like type 2 diabetes in, in kids and teens. That is wild to hear that. Watching my children, I'm aware of also what what I say about my body and not just in front of my daughter, but also my son. I think that's important for both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had really thought, and this was after listening to The Body is Not an Apology. And you and I have talked about this and how also Brene Brown had read the book. And when she was sitting with Sonia, how she had said, like, I threw the book across the wall. And I remember listening to it and you warned me and I I had to take the, the buds out. I was like, no this book and it's exactly what we needed. But, you know, I think with my children, how, again, kind of circling back to what we said earlier, they don't judge their bodies. They see their bodies as this really cool thing. And we were all at that state at one point and we were taught to hate our bodies. And one day I had said, so I I like to practice with my daughter, you know, if she's wearing a dress and she's like, do you like my dress? I say, I like your dress and you look so powerful in it. And then one day I stepped a little bit further, which felt really strange for me to say she was in my room as I was getting ready. And I just said, I love my body. It does so much for me, which if we think of the messaging that we heard growing up, it's not something that we heard a lot of. No, I think most people would say, yeah, that's pretty different, right? Especially if we think of as kind of kids or teenagers watching, you know, kind of groups of adult women, like we're almost socialized that we're supposed to sit around and be talking about, oh yeah, I'm aiming to lose X number of pounds. Or we get a compliment and think, oh, but uh, yeah, but this. What if we just thought, I love my body? 
Like yeah. it's, it's my home. It's my, it's, it's my, my partner in this. Mm. And I know we've had, especially kind of during kind of COVID and, and audiobook fascinations and things, a lot of chats about this, but I really feel like I'm not interested in listening to or reading something for my own personal development that doesn't make me stop and take the earbuds out. That doesn't yeah. feel like some kind of personal read where I'm going like, oh, that is very uncomfortable. And I have this distinct memory of listening um, to Untamed by Glennon Doyle. As I'm, you know, I'm on a walk. I was here in Ottawa walking through the experimental farm. And there's one part where she's talking about healing from eating disorder and addiction, where she makes the point of like, your body is your ride or die. Like this is, this is your lifelong relationship that stopped me in my tracks. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Wait, okay. Rewind that. <laughs> Rewind that one. Yeah, your body is your ride or die. That is so powerful. That this is going to be your your lifelong and your longest relationship. Yeah. Okay, that brings me to the next part, which is the, you and I have talked about this a lot, is just how noisy our bodies are. Um, and so then the, I got this question around, what do we do if we feel bloated or we feel like we're not good or we should lose weight? And what should we do instead of turning to that negative self-talk that comes up so often for people? The idea of bloating, I hear this a lot. And it's like, well, okay, again, what, what does that feel like in your body? What do you mean? Because sometimes the people are reintroducing, you know, new food groups that have sort of been off the table for them for a while. Um, our body might kind of go like, oh, I, I have a bit of a getting used to, period, mm -hmm. with this. Um, sometimes if people have been very restrictive and then start kind of returning to more normalized amounts or frequency of eating, their body also needs a bit of kind of a warm-up kind of period to think, oh, right, we, we used to have those three meals a day. Okay, get back on board. They're giving me this again. Mm. Uh, but also if people have really been limiting their food a lot, sometimes what they deem is like, oh, I'm so bloated, is this is just a, an observable digestive process that's going on for me. Mm -hmm. I, I've not gained weight. There's nothing wrong about it. It's just if I have that meal, my stomach and my digestive tract is doing its job. My stomach might look a little bit different than it did before I ate. That's okay. And it's really no different than saying, if I take a really big breath of air, I, I may sort of notice that kind of my, my chest expands and then it goes back. And mm -hmm. it's all kind of just that flexibility that's built into our system. And so in some ways, it's like you're saying, tolerate that discomfort of bodies change, bodies are noisy, they're, that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, and our job is to not go into that controlling of like, oh no, you know, look at my body, beat, beat yourself up, shame yourself for whatever you ate, and then try to control it all over again the next day. Right. And I mean, your example of like, so Greg makes the cookies, you know, like they were delicious, didn't really agree with my body. We all may have some foods like, you know, without, without having a specific allergy or certain sensitivity mm -hmm. that would go, that just, it doesn't sit well yeah. for me. So I don't have to deem that a bad food. I don't have to think like, oh, my stupid body can't process that. Just, that's just not a good fit for me. Right. No different than we might think, you no, know, that article of clothing is fine. And my body is fine. And it's just not 
that comfortable or doesn't kind of feel right for me, that that's okay. Right. That's choosing there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do we do if we, this is a very specific question, if we suspect that one of our friends might be struggling with their body image or with an eating disorder, what kind of approaches would you recommend to someone? First and foremost, I think if, I, I mean, I think this is helpful in all of our relationships, but especially if we're concerned about somebody to really, really be conscious to back off of appearance or weight related conversations, comments, things about them, um, whether we engage in that about ourselves, um, to not try to like over monitor what someone's eating, what they're doing, right? We don't want to become kind of food police for them. Um, really to kind of be building them up and be giving them compliments about, you know, who they are, what they mean to us in our lives and all that kind of good stuff, which is generally for thinking about our friends. We don't just think, well, why do you like this person? Well, because their body mass index is something in particular. Like, that's nuts. That's not why we care about people. Um, but also if you're concerned to try to have a, a gentle but direct and private conversation about that, Right, which might mean like something like, hey, I just want to check in with you because I've, you know, I've noticed when we're talking about different things, a lot of times it seems like you are like really having a tough time with your body or really kind of stressing on these things. Just want to see if you're okay. Like, is there, is there anything you want to talk about or anything you need from me? I really like that because what that does is it's like the, I'm checking in. I thought of you, you're not judging, you're being open and you're giving that person the space. And mm -hmm. if someone says, no, I'm good, then that's their boundary. And our job in our relationships is to respect that boundary um, that you've opened it up. They know you're there. And then now you get to make a choice of what you do with that next. Mm -hmm. And when we open that up, I mean, if that's, you know, if we've been hearing kind of hearing someone kind of talk through their stress about food or their body, they might actually kind of talk to us about what's going on underneath. If we've noticed kind of physical change of, you know, of kind of dramatic weight loss or something in somebody or kind of changes in their, their eating behavior when they're out, we don't know what that's about. Mm -hmm. Right. That's why like you, and it's, it's actually whenever I do training with medical professionals, we kind of play this first icebreaker game of, you know, you get, you get a new patient coming in. Um, the only information on that referral sheet is they're coming in for services or an eating disorder. Who is that person? Mm -hmm. And inevitably, everybody around the table kind of uh, looks a bit sheepish about it, but comes up with pretty much the same answer of who they would be walking into the waiting room expecting to see. Which is? And, which is generally a young, thin, white woman. And what does someone with an eating disorder look like? People. People, yes. But there, there is no way of being able to kind of visually clock who is suffering with an eating disorder and who's not. And by the same token, you know, if we bring this up to, to a loved one, if, you know, if I go to my loved one and say, I've noticed your body has really changed. We need to talk kind of about this eating disorder stuff. They might say like, what, first of all, like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. I don't know whether they're really stressed, whether they're having medical concerns, whether something else is going on for them. I don't know. All I'm picking up on is there a change in what I'm seeing or what I'm hearing that makes me worry about them. And so I think we generally in communication with people, if we're leading from that space of like, hey, I'm thinking about you. 
I've, you know, you've been on my mind and I'm just worried. I want to check in. That means if there is something to talk about, we, we may have kind of created an openness to do that. What I would also just flag for people is, you know, your friend or loved one might at first pass say, oh, like, you know, thanks for checking on me. I, I'm good. But at least you've opened that dialogue. Mm-hmm. So if they're coming around or needing or wanting that support later on, that they know the door's open. I think that's the important piece there, knowing that the door is open and that you have not come into this space being judgmental or making assumptions about how someone is doing, um, just really allowing that openness. Okay, last question. For those listening, if they maybe are struggling and wondering, when do I seek help? I think if you're wondering, I think it's time to talk to somebody. Um, there's, especially sort of within the the eating disorder kind of world, um, sometimes people really do have this idea of like, I'm not sick enough. And there's actually a really great book around eating disorders that's called Sick Enough um, that really kind of debunks a lot of kind of the the myths and gives a really, really good, um, you know, just medical advice around eating disorders. But if, if you are concerned, if you're noticing that, hey, actually, you know, worries or thoughts about my food or about my body are taking up a ton of my energy, are really kind of breaking down how I feel, really have me doubting myself, that that right there is a great time to talk to people. Um, it's it's always easier if we're saying, okay, we're doing some of the body image work, kind of getting in before really disordered eating is happening. So we can start working on, say, something similar to an intuitive eating model. There's a ton of prevention there. And it, that it's, 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 it's easier work for the individual to do. And it also means there's sort of less kind of collateral damage than mm-hmm. trying to work back from something that's really taken over your life. Yeah, that's you and I both see that in our practices that people wait until it is the work, the bad enough, right? Like you don't need to wait until it's bad enough to seek support. If you're struggling with something, if you're questioning it, then that is a great time to go and see someone. Yeah. And I would say too, I mean, and so for anyone, especially listening who may be living in a larger body or who doesn't kind of present in their doctor's office, looking like a kind of like, you know, unfortunately and incorrectly typical person with an eating disorder, if you do not get the support you need the first time, seek somebody else because a provider's lack of understanding about eating disorders and how they work does not take away from the help that you need. I love that you added that. Thank you so much. That's so important. Dr. Megan, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at Dr. Megan Gallagher. um, And also for people in Ontario through our website at integratedottawa.ca. And I will put the links in the show notes. Follow Dr. Megan on Instagram. She has so many great posts in there on what intuitive eating actually is. (laughs) And I'll put the links there. Thank you, Dr. Megan, for your time today. Thanks for having me. I think one of the biggest things that really stood out for me after sitting with Dr. Megan and talking about our bodies and food and intuitive eating is that we as humans really like control. And I know this myself. And so if I'm going to leave you with one thing after today's session, I want you to take this piece away. We are not supposed to be able to control everything in our life. And that is incredibly uncomfortable. And what we need to get comfortable feeling is that sense of discomfort that we have in our life where we don't get to control every little thing. I know this is incredibly easy for me to sit here and to talk about this. 
And what we can start to do is to make one small shift in life, which maybe for you this week, it might be something like, I'm going to notice how uncomfortable this urge is right now. And even if I'm going to do the thing that is trying to get rid of that uncomfortable feeling, the piece of work that I'm doing is that I am now aware of this. I'm so grateful that you have joined me for another podcast episode here. Please jump into my DMs, say hello, let me know what you thought of the episode, or leave me a review on iTunes. Until next time, remember that you are right where you need to be. Remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute the care from a licensed mental health care provider. What's up, guys? I'm Gabrielle Stone, host of FML Talk. After being love-bombed, married, and cheated on, trust me, I've got some perspective on love, heartbreak, trauma, and healing. FML Talk has become weekly therapy for my listeners, where I give you a safe space to heal with, of course, a few F-bombs thrown in. Fun girl talk episodes, solo episodes that will guide you on your healing journey, and guests with stories that will leave your jaw on the floor. Grab a cocktail and come hang with me every Wednesday on FML Talk.